BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome to The Bill Press Show. I'm Sabrina Siddiqui, political reporter for The Guardian, back in the hosting chair, filling in for Bill on this Tuesday morning, already a busy week. And I'm happy to be back here with my friends, the wonderful team over here, including Mr. Peter Ogburn, our executive producer. Sabrina, hello. Hello. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. It's been a little while. It has been. You've been all over the place. I have. It was true. You've been on vacation. Vacation, Spain, and France. Uh, I would have to say that uh, Washington, D.C. now pales in comparison. Oh, jeez. Shocker. I would have never guessed. <laughs> Jamie Benson, our producer, also here with us this morning. Hello, hello. Sabrina, what you're telling me is you don't like coming home to the swamp. Yeah, no. Mm. Drain the swamp. Drain the swamp. Rach- I thrive in the swamp. <laughs> also, our video producer, Rachel Pikarski, is with us. And, of course, Cyprian Bolding, video operator, making this all look good on camera. Um, you know, we've got a lot to break down, uh, including some bizarreness coming out of the White House late at night, which is sort of the new normal. But first, this is the full court press. Just a couple of other stories making news. We go to Wilmington, Delaware, where yesterday Joe Biden was back, baby. He went to Price's Run Pool, which is where he (laughs) used to be a lifeguard. And he was there because the ceremony was renamed. Uh, this in the ceremony, the facility was renamed the Joseph R. Biden Jr. Aquatic Center. Joe Biden even got up on the lifeguard chair, surrounded yes. by uh, people who were there at the pool. Now it was very in a interesting. Suit. In his suit, yeah, Which not not great. a swimsuit, but a but an in actual an, a suit. Proper suit. You should look up that photo. It's actually really interesting. I watched uh, some of his comments after the the ceremony uh, where he spoke, and he was saying that. This was his first encounter with black people. And for a lot of black people, it was his first, their first encounter with white people. Because at the time, things were so segregated and there were a lot of other black lifeguards at the pool. And he was right. the only white lifeguard. And he said one of the things that always he always remembered is they had a conversation one time because they were trying to find if, if anybody had a gas can. Because they were driving south. 
and you can't stop at gas stations or you mm. couldn't stop at gas stations as a black person in 1962 wow. and they needed to carry gas with them. That's how screwed up things were. And Biden said that he always remembered that and that stuck with him all these years later. It was a really interesting ceremony. Uh, I will avoid any jumping in or getting into the pool puns for 2020 yeah. as he stood uh, atop Somehow the you stand. just made them But anyway. I think I just did. You know, yeah. they call him Diamond Joe. Test- Diamond Joe. Testing and the waters. That's it. The lighting in that picture Here of week, him guys. up there. You notice with Joe Biden, the lighting is always perfect. Yeah. That's why Everything they call him about Joe. Joe Biden is always perfect. Joe Biden's got a glow to him. <laughs> He's got a glow to him. Uh, we go to Boston where someone tried Uh-oh. to go through TSA with a 20-pound live lobster in their luggage. The TSA spotted, spotted a large check piece of checked luggage. Uh, they went in. They took a look at it. It was a 20-pound 20, 20 live lobster. Now, here's the thing I didn't realize. You can absolutely travel with a live lobster yep. in your checked baggage or in your carry-on. So did they arrest Jimmy no. Benson for this? I have an alibi. Or they, by the, they way. the person got to go. They got to go. keep the lobster and go through. They just thought it was remarkable. They t- TSA took a photo of it, That's but amazing. nobody got in any trouble or anything because it's totally. They they used to do Boston this. Boston man at this is the a very Florida this man. Is a Boston man. They used to do this at the Portland International Jetport in Portland, Maine, where you they literally had a tank of lobsters, uh, like right where you board the plane. <laughs> See, you could buy all, a lobster. He knows all about it. And you could buy a lobster to take with you. Yeah. A 20-pound lobster is probably harder to come by. This point. guy's menu hero. Yeah. But he still, but like I said, he kept the lobster good for him. Lobster. Yeah. I love me some lobster. We've got a great lineup today. We'll be with us shortly. On your radio, on TV, and online. This is the Bill Press Show. So, while you were sleeping, the White House was at its up to its usual shenanigans, uh, or so it seems. It's really not clear what happened, other than that, just before 10 o'clock p.m., a statement is issued by the press secretary from the official. White House account saying that the United States has detected evidence that Bashar al-Assad in Syria is going to conduct a chemical weapons attack or is preparing to do so, similar to the scale of the attack in April, which would cause mass civilian casualties, and that the United States will not tolerate any such such action. It would similarly, as it was last time, be met with Significant retaliatory measures. So everyone, you know, stops for a moment. Certainly interesting that the White House would decide to issue this statement publicly. It's obviously a warning, to say the very least, and a bit of an unusual way of conducting uh, policy, foreign policy. But then CENTCOM tells reporters that they don't know what precipitated the statement from the White House. I, I want to read a little a key part of the statement here where they, they make a very clear threat to Syria. Uh, the activity, quote, the activities are similar to preparation the regime made before its April 4th, 2017 chemical weapons attack. Uh, as we have previously stated, the United States is in Syria to eliminate the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria if, however, 
Mr. Assad conducts another mass murder using mass murder attack using chemical weapons, he and his military will pay a heavy price. End quote. They didn't offer any further details about what no. potential preparations or the activities were. And I get, okay, let's just say that they had this evidence in hand. And if they did want to issue some kind of warning. I mean, let's even just go with the most baseline interpretation of what went down. To not coordinate with the intelligence community, and unless this attack is so imminent that it's maybe going to unfold within moments. But then even if that were the case, you would have expect that the president would go out there and say something, not that right. they would email to the press shop, through the press <laughs> shop, to a bunch of reporters, you know, a couple paragraph statement. Um, so that was just one thing that was happening. And meanwhile, just as this was all transpiring, Trump is tweeting. And as usual... Because of course he is. Because of course he is. He's not necessarily tweeting about Syria and, you know, the what exactly is the origin of, you know, this concern, um, where, you know, what exactly have they seen. He is tweeting about, of course, the investigation into Russia and declaring it a witch hunt, uh, which is, of course, related to in more recent days, is what has drawn Trump's ire is the fact that there was this big investigative report in the Washington Post uh, saying that the Obama administration, in essence, did not take seriously enough the threat that was coming from Russia and could have potentially, according to some former administration officials and people within the government, taken more aggressive uh, countermeasures, uh, but was so concerned with the perception that they would be swaying the election in Hillary Clinton's favor that they were uh showing some sort of preference to the Democratic Party nominee. And I think that that, uh, according to at least this Washington Post report, was in some ways uh, emboldening for Russia or enabled the enabling is a better word to go and conduct, of course, some of the interference that it did in the U.S. presidential race, um, which is also what has caused Trump to actually for the first time admit that there was, in fact, collusion or uh, or not not necessarily collusion, I should say, but that there was, in fact, interference by the Russians because now he gets to blame Obama. Yeah. Um, actually, Sean Spicer was asked about this very idea of collusion. Um, but we'll, we'll get to his audio later. And I think that the, the point here is, was there, was there not collusion according to the White House? It seems to be, depending on who Donald Trump can place blame on, Yes or no? First of all, congratulations to Donald Trump for learning about the word collusion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because he's using it all the time now, and I don't think he really truly understands what it means. Yeah. We should play Sean Spicer. Sean Spicer yesterday in an off-camera briefing, which has become increasingly frequent, was asked about the president being all over the place on the idea of collusion. I think it's then pretty clear that they knew all along uh, that there was no collusion, and that's uh, very helpful for the president. So they knew all along is the Obama administration. Actually, the, the Obama administration did not. There's no nothing to suggest that the Obama administration knew whether or not there was collusion happening between the Trump campaign and Russia. All that this really says is that they knew for a, longer than the public may have been previously aware that Russia was trying to interfere with the U.S. election. But facts don't 
particularly matter with this administration, no. Peter? No, no, it doesn't. And <laughs> I, I'm uh, no, I'm particularly riled up. I, I get so sick and tired of everybody making a big deal about the press briefing being off camera. Just turn the cameras on. Well, actually, just turn the cameras on. Turn the camera. Tell us why you turn the cameras off. Why are they off? Sean? It's a legitimate question. It's a Trey. legitimate question. Trey. You are a taxpayer Trey. spokesman Trey. for the United States government. Can you at least give us an explanation Trey. as to why? Turn the cameras, cameras on. Can we get this out of the way? Can we address the cameras issue? Uh, do you think this? Yeah, some days we'll have them, some days we won't. The president's going to speak today in the Rose Garden. Uh, I want the president's voice to carry the day. Oh, get out of here. Get out of here. I you know. know. Don't, you can't take anything. You can't. And also, at some point, you would think that. Um, the press should just do whatever it is that they feel is appropriate. I mean, Look, these are terms that have not been agreed to by the press. In the same way that if a source says this is off the record and you didn't agree to it, you're not obligated to comply if there wasn't already an agreement that this conversation is going to be off the record. Or right. not a, there's, that's not how an agreement right. works. If you know the White House says this information is only for planning purposes, don't report. But we didn't necessarily agree that that should be the arrangement. Turn the cameras and on. And they're sending pretty mundane information to begin with. Have CNN just turn the camera <laughs> turn on the and camera. leave it on. What are they going to do? By the way, the president's voice did not carry the day. More <laughs> attention was paid to Sean Spicer than the little yes. ceremony in the Rose Garden. You're right. The president's going to speak today in the Rose Garden. Uh, I want the president's voice to carry the day. You're absolutely right. And also, the thing is about these briefings is this is given the infrequency with which Trump conducts press conferences, mm -hmm. a tendency to often call on reporters from conservative outlets or friendly media, there is there is no real opportunity other than this press briefing to publicly question the White House, to publicly question the person who speaks on behalf of the White House. I know people say the utility of these briefings is questionable because so much of what this particular administration says is just a lie. There's no other way to characterize it. People say it's too harsh. Nope. When someone says something that isn't true and they are doing it intentionally, that is a lie. That's a lie. Um, you call it a lie. But that doesn't mean that the opportunity should not exist to press them on issues and to ask them questions, especially in the service of the public. You know, it's kind of bizarre because you would think that a day like yesterday, the administration would have gladly um, been out there on camera because the Supreme Court ruled or allowed, I should say, that at least a limited version of Trump's travel ban on six Muslim majority countries and temporary suspension of the U.S. refugee program could go into effect. Certainly a much more scaled back version than what the administration originally wanted. But uh, what in essence happened, because there's a lot of confusion, is this the final ruling? The, the Supreme Court has not actually de decided on the merits of the travel ban itself. They've decided to take up the case to hear oral arguments. They will do that in beginning in October. But in the meantime... They did not entirely uphold the injunctions by the lower courts, which had blocked the travel ban from being implemented entirely. What they said is they the people who have a bona fide, quote unquote, relationship with the, a U.S. person or entity can still come in. Now, you know, it's mixed reviews. We'll get more into that with the great Fez Shakir, who's going to be joining us later from the American Civil Liberties Union. But, Peter, uh, what I, I will say right now is, you know, some people were seeing this as a partial victory for Trump in that there are some people who now won't be able to come in. I think that the the situation is a lot more precarious for refugees. Yeah. It's more difficult for refugees to to prove a bona fide relationship. But it's not clear what that means. Does the Supreme Court think that the churches and the religious organizations who are who are working 
to bring in and sponsor refugees? Is that a bona fide connection? Are there refugee resettlement groups? Do they count as a bona fide connection? At least with travelers from the six Muslim majority countries, this actually covers most of the travel um, to say that they could come in, students, people who are coming to visit family, people who are coming here on work permits, people who are coming for research and to speak at uni- university. Don't really know what it means, however, for refugees. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of emblematic of the whole Trump administration here, right? Because they've got this very, very, very complex issue that they try and fix with a very simple Band-Aid, right? Um, whether or not this whole travel ban or Muslim ban is an actual issue is beside the point at, at now, right? Like, it's out there, and this is what they're going to do. They're going to fight for this, whether whether it's a real right. problem or not. We, we've, we've it is now purely issue. political. For their, yeah, for exactly. Fight, right? And you make a good point that, like, at this point, all it really does is just highly complicate uh, an issue that is already pretty complicated. And when you talk about the refugees, I mean, these aren't the people that are any, I mean, first of all, we didn't really have a problem to begin with, but like, right. if your argument is that this is a problem, it wasn't the refugees that was an issue for those people. And those are the ones that are going to get really screwed, at least until like October right. when uh, the, the, the Supreme Court takes an actual look at this. And by the way, I think the Supreme Court is probably going to rule in the favor of Donald Trump's ban. You do? Yeah, I do. You know, it's it's t- we'll have to we'll have to ask Faze if he agrees. But I was talking to legal experts yesterday, and they actually thought that this indicated uh, at least that many elements of the initial desired ban are are unconstitutional according to the Supreme Court. Because for them to say that people who have a bona fide connection from let's just take for for a moment separate the refugees from the six muslim majority countries because you know the, the so-called muslim ban he campaigned on uh, you know it was originally seven countries in january they mm-hmm. took iraq off the list because uh, you know some people were at least able to have sense prevail that the us is engaged in a major decade long war and we can't just bar people who right. are serving alongside the military from coming here but um you know with these other six countries the court has at least said most of those travelers should be able to come. That you can't outright ban people from coming. The initial desire was to just suspend all immigration from these countries. And what the court has actually said is, or tipped its hand by saying, actually, no, like, you know, students, relatives, workers, you know, other people who are coming in any official capacity, which is why most of those people come anyway, they should all be able to still come. Mm-hmm. And then if someone is just coming here randomly, then maybe those visas would be denied. But, you know, I'm not sure what the level of tourism really is from Syria and Yemen to the United States right, right. now. Um, so, you know, that I think that that was a design, and, and we can break it, we'll break it down, like I said, more with our great guests from the ACLU later, but that was designed to to sort of say that, you know, on the on the idea of just outright banning people from these six countries, no, you can't do that. Yeah. If it gives people a little bit of hope. We'll see. We'll see. Um, so that was at least one headline that was dominating the day yesterday. Uh, we would be remiss if we did not talk a little bit about health care. We will be talking about it uh, probably a fair amount more with uh, our first guest this morning, uh, Congresswoman Sherry Bustos, who, of course, uh, is a part of the House Democratic Caucus. But the Senate unveiled a revised version of its legislation that was scored by the CBO late afternoon. 
Yeah. Yesterday. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Let's CBO talk about score. that CBO score. Twenty as I, just as a top line, twenty-two million more people would be uninsured over the next decade. Fifteen million more just next year alone. Holy cow! And then that number ticks up to nineteen million in twenty twenty, and then eventually to the twenty-two million. The House Republican version that passed a couple of months ago would have left. 23 million more uninsured over a 10-year period. So they've been able to reduce the number of uninsured from 23 million to 22 million. Look, there's a a whole sort of firestorm going on right now uh, about Republicans and Republican media getting very upset that Democrats are going around saying that if this repeal of Obamacare, if this AHCA goes through, people will die. Because people are saying that. People will die. I don't see any other way to say it. Right. I mean, this CBO score is pretty clear. Right. That many people are going to lose health care. Health care is the only thing keeping some of these people alive. Right. There is- I don't know. I, 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 I don't know why that's so controversial. People are acting like that's some sort of dirty tactic or uh, that that's some sort of hateful, insightful language that Republicans are killers. Well, pretty clear. The revised version also has a six-month waiting period for certain individuals uh, in terms of obtaining insurance uh, from the markets. And that, for people who suffer from severe diseases such as cancer, heart condition, that that six months could be fatal. Sure, yes. People cannot wait six months. Uh, They cannot be locked out of the insurance market for a period of six months. Uh, but what this is actually doing is, in essence, de-incentivizing people from buying insurance. Right. This is actually, you know, in, in, in the counter to the individual mandate of Obamacare, what this is actually trying to do is de-incentivize healthy people, so, so quote-unquote healthy people, from purchasing insurance. Um, there are also draconian cuts to Medicaid, which, you know, of course, then primarily affects low-income and older Americans, as well as people of color. Uh, there is a one-year provision. There's a provision that defunds Planned Parenthood for one year. Uh, the estimate. Which, by the way, if they defund it for one year, it ain't coming back. It is not coming back, and the CBO actually had a specific, some specific projection around Planned Parenthood because mm-hmm. it's contrary to popular belief, not just a provider of abortions, but of a lot of health services, women's health services. And not only would births go up by several thousand just in that first year alone, according to the CBO, 15% of the people who benefit from those services provided by Planned Parenthood would lose coverage from the women's health, you know, organ clinics that, that Planned Parenthood pretty much have across the country, especially in rural areas where there are not other medical practitioners, where there are not necessarily other options, other alternatives for women who are seeking certain services. And again, these are not just services that cover abortion. These are also, there's contraception. If the whole idea is we want to have less abortion, it goes back to the 101. Well, then you should increase access to contraception. You know, there are also, of course, screenings that Planned Parenthood provides for types of cancer. They also provide preventative care. They It's a lot more than just abortion. Uh, the, the one thing that has, having said that, in the wake of the CBO score happened, is that at least three Republicans 
have said that they will forget the bill itself. They will vote against the motion to proceed, which is significant because that's saying we're not even going to vote to to begin debate on this bill. Yeah. And some of them indicated that nothing would forget changes. They Susan Collins, a senator from Maine, who was always going to be seen as one of the likely opponents, she outright said, I at this point, I just want to work with my colleagues on the other side of the aisle to fix the flaws in the Affordable Care Act, in other words, to improve upon Obamacare, which is significant because that's only one out of, yeah. but, and they, they need just a simple majority of 51 eventually to, to advance this Republican bill. But that's one of the first Republicans who is actually saying, let's just give up on this whole repeal and replace effort yeah. and let's just move on. Yeah, that's the smart money these days. I mean, it really is. I mean, if you want to know how to uh, move forward with this, that's that's where you should put your money. I don't think they're going to get this straight up and down vote. I don't. All they need is fifty. I don't think they're going to get it. You know, the Mitch McConnell and leadership are threatening a vote at the end of the week, Fine. and Ron Johnson, a senator from Wisconsin, another critical swing state, he's he according to his conversation with a conservative radio show host and now MSNBC host Hugh Hewitt vomit was having was having was <laughs> God. Ha- was having none of it oh, you want to play the clip or oh. <laughs> leadership wants to jam this enforce it using that as a forcing mechanism i don't know Hugh i just find that a little offensive i'm behind the clothes i, I see what leadership's trying to do they're trying to jam this thing through it is far from a perfect bill. So the thing is, you know, you have some people like Ron Johnson, a longtime advocate. Let's play the second clip, too. Of repealing, praising, all we have everything down. we Why need to sell it. All we need to do is have a party to pass it. it. Oh, no, we no, will we, we once we have it. We've got we to get oh, it. That's, that is the wrong, that's the wrong time to sell it is afterwards. <laughs> you, you, it's such a dumb Don't you want to hear Republican infighting? I do. Your, your answer is a good point. I don't like hearing that. He, 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 he it's a dumb. Did did he just but, did Ron Johnson say the wrong kind of salad is afterwards? What we've got to get it. Oh, that's that is the wrong. That's the wrong time to sell it is afterwards. The wrong time to sell time it. Time to sell it. it. <laughs> I was like, is Ron Johnson is also? Is it lunchtime? Is this is not the salad I did ordered. You have breakfast. <laughs> no, I thought he was like coming out against like eating salad after the meal, and there was some analogy. That's the wrong time to sell it is afterwards. <laughs> there was some kind of analogy I wasn't understanding. And I, as someone who, who nailed it, it's that Wisconsin <laughs> accent. Yeah. I was like, as someone who maybe this is a very like Midwest, like anti anti elitists who eat their salad after the meal <laughs> instead of before. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> now the wrong time to sell it is afterwards. Well, you know, the like, thing is that the what Ron Johnson is is alluding to, and certainly other Republicans have said, we need to just slow down this process. You know, is one of the things that they were very critical of when it comes to Democrats was. Oh, they just kind of jammed a bill through mm. and, you know, they, they play out of context the whole Nancy Pelosi. Well, we'll we'll you know, we'll find out what's in the bill after we pass it inartfully stated. But that's not actually exactly what she what she had said at the time. But, you know, first and foremost, whenever we bring up this 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 criticism that they had of Democrats, actually, there was over a year of debate. It's just that Republicans eventually chose not to participate in the debate over health care once they realized how toxic it would be. There were public hearings. There were forums and roundtables with healthcare stakeholders. This process dragged on for a very long time, from 2009 into 2010. You know, so it was not actually, you know, rushed through in the same way that it was Republicans. Hardly a rush. In the same way yeah. Republicans actually have decided to try and rush through their legislation. Um, and I think the- that it would be. I think that, you know, it, if it can't even get. 
51 votes. It's not, I think what I saw some people on the Hill who, who follow at least just the kind of process more closely have said, it probably won't even get 40 votes. You know, if people see that this oh. is a politically toxic bill that is going to dramatically reduce coverage for their own constituents, you have to see the difference between the House and the Senate. These are statewide yeah. representatives, it's, not someone who's got a district of a couple thousand. This is These are people who are dealing with millions of people in their states. It is clear, though, that on a lot of levels for some of these people voting, it really doesn't matter because all they have to do is just say, look, Obamacare was bad. This was a vote against Obamacare. And that's all a lot of people really want to hear, right? Right. But I don't think that's going to be enough to see this bill all the way through. Right. There are those senators, I will say, who said anything is better than Obamacare. One, in fact, Republican senator told reporters yesterday, I don't know what's in it. I just know that it's better than Obamacare. Um, we would, you know, we have some great guests lined up. Uh, but before we get into some very fruitful discussion, hopefully with them Ivanka Trump. Don't. We have to. Do not. We just have to. She was on Fox Only yesterday. Once. Just this one time. You know, I try to stay out of politics. Mm -hmm. You know, I. his political instincts are phenomenal. He what? did something that no one could have imagined he'd be able to accomplish. There were very few who saw it. I'm going to lose my mind. I try to stay out of Politics? Lose my mind listening to that. I am the senior advisor, a senior. So she's got an office in the White House. To the president. Not political. Who travels around the world, apparently has accepted, according to her dad, a, an invitation to India. To further our economic partnership, I'm excited to report that the prime minister has invited my daughter Ivanka to lead the U.S. delegation to the global entrepreneurship summit in india this fall and i believe she has accepted she of course is also engaged in uh meetings with other high level officials foreign leaders from several countries jared kushner her husband is a senior advisor to the president and ivanka is uh, you know making an appearance every now and then on capitol hill trying to push you know a conservative proposal for paid family leave and other issues you know what just embrace it. Just own it. If she actually does want to advance paid family leave, even if it's a conservative proposal that Democrats may not go for and she's looking for cooperation that may not exist, at least just say, like, look, I'm 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 in it. I'm in, I'm here and I'm this is like my this is a, this is my agenda. This is our shared agenda. And and I don't think I mean, her dad is the president of the United States. I don't this whole trying to have it both ways, I think, is enough to drive everyone crazy. But we are going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll be talking to Congresswoman Sherry Bustos. So stay tuned to The Bill Press Show. It's You are a taxpayer Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. I'm Sabrina Siddiqui, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill. And joining us now in studio is Congresswoman Sherry Bustos, representing the 17th District of Illinois. She is also the co-chair of the Democratic Policy and Communications 
committee. And Congresswoman, you also have a new position that we'll get into as well. But first, good morning and thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So you are now the chair of the of Heartland Engagement at the DCCC. Tell us a, a little bit more about what that means. By the way, you are the first to announce it because the news release news release just went out this morning. So breaking, <laughs> breaking news. news here on Bill Press. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you what it means. I represent a district in northwestern Illinois that is mostly rural. Mm-hmm. There's 14 counties. Uh, Donald Trump won those 14 counties, and I ended up winning by 20 points. So a lot of this has to do with. Well, what, what is a Democrat doing in a district that Trump won and how can we be successful throughout the heartland and win, win more of these seats back? Mm-hmm. And so the heartland engagement means I'm going to share some of the best practices that have worked with us. Um, I will I'm on the recruitment committee over at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Um, I will be involved with candidates once they get in and figure out what, what we're going to do to be successful going forth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've, we've not done overly well as Democrats in the heartland. And we want to do well again. Well, I think that one of the challenges that certainly emerged from the election is how do Democrats reach those working class voters whom they lost, um, some of them who have supported the party in the past. And I know that even as Tr- President Trump has taken office, it seems like a lot of the messaging is opposing his agenda mm-hmm. and trying to at least make a case on certain civil rights issues. The Russia investigation is obviously one of the top priorities that we hear a lot about from Democrats. But you said that, you know, anti-Trump within of itself is not enough. I don't think it's enough. Um, and I'm basing that on real conversations I have when I go home. When when I'm not in Washington, I'm back home. And, and I'm in the supermarket or I'm uh, job shadowing somebody as they're as they're welding or are they as they're repairing cars or as they're delivering packages and unprompted uh, people don't bring up Russia. They don't they don't right. bring up all of these scandals that seem to consume Washington, D.C. They talk about not getting a raise in the last five years or only getting two raises in the last dozen years. And they talk about losing their job to Mexico um, only to have a job that replaced it making half the, the salary. Mm-hmm. So it is jobs in the economy and it's got to be that nonstop. That's what, in my opinion, what we need to be talking I about. I think I, I get so tired of so many Democrats that I know that are just saying, you know, this Russia stuff is going to catch up to them and then, you know, it's a whole new ball game. Maybe the Russia stuff catches up to them, right? The Russia thing is something we should absolutely be looking at. But meantime... Like there are other things we've got to be worried about. We can't just rely on his own ineptitude to get him out of office. Yeah, and it, that will play out. Sure, absolutely. You know, we, we've got a process in place. Uh, we have uh, uh, Bob Mueller who is looking into this, and the the truth will come out in the end. And, and you know, I mean, that's what that's what we believe, right? The truth will come out in the end. But in the meantime, you have people who are hurting. And we have this health care bill. I hear a lot about health care, though. Okay. I, will, I will say that. Mm-hmm. People are concerned about health care. We started this uh, small video series that we call Hear from the Heartland, H-E-A-R, mm-hmm. and it's hearing from people directly through their stories. And there, there are some horrible stories about people, uh, you know, born with cerebral palsy who I have, I have a mom who's, whose son was born with cerebral palsy who says, 
my son's my son is a pre-existing condition when he was born mm-hmm. and so there are real concerns about that and, and and how people are going to not only afford health care but make sure they can get health care mm-hmm. for their loved ones well you know congressman on health care the cbo yesterday scored the senate Republican version of uh, the repeal and replacement plan for the Affordable Care Act, and they projected that 22 million more people would be uninsured by over the next 10 years, 15 million just next year alone. The House version that your Republican colleagues in the House had passed uh, would have left 23 million more uninsured in a 10-year period. How concerned are you that Republicans will push through Uh, this Obamacare replacement plan and what the ramifications would be for your constituents and these millions of Americans across the country who have relied on programs like Medicaid and others and these exchanges to receive coverage. Well, I'm very concerned. In my district alone, more than 40,000 people would lose their health insurance under this plan. Mm -hmm. Um, In the state of Illinois, there would be 60,000 people who would lose their jobs. So even if if you want to drill down to the to the heartland in rural America, areas that Donald Trump did so well in, um, hospitals typically are among the largest employers in these smaller towns, and we've got 700 rural hospitals that are at risk of closing, and uh, so I'm I'm very concerned about it. Th- these are real people's lives. Nobody chooses to get cancer or have a heart attack. Um, or be born with cerebral palsy. And, and this is the reality of, uh, to the Senate plan, 22 million Americans getting thrown off of their health insurance. And, you know, here's the thing. Do, do they think that this is a major improvement going from 23 million Americans losing their health insurance to 22? I mean, it's unconscionable that, that this is even being considered. You know, the, there's been some discomfort already among Senate Republicans, not just with the CBO score, but you know the points that you were mentioning about the number of people who would be kicked off of their health care plans, and even your colleagues in the House, the Republicans, when they were passing this, they had said, "Well, we hope the Senate's going to make it better." We now see that all it's done is taken you know one million less people uh, out of that gap that would have pe- of people who would lose their coverage. But they seemed very uneasy about passing this legislation privately. What are they saying to you? Do they actually think that this path that they're taking? is going to succeed. And I, mean, I imagine they're hearing exactly from their constituents what you've heard from yours. I mean, privately, what do your colleague, Republican colleagues tell you about this, this entire endeavor that they've embarked on with respect to Obamacare? Their thought was that the Senate would come back with a much better version and that they would work out these differences before sending it to the uh, president to be signed into law. I, I think this is a very, very tough thing to sell back home. Again, it, it, Republicans did very well. They do very well in the heartland of our country. Th- this is not. This is something that people are concerned about for their own families, from a job perspective. You know, if if we are the party that uh, fights for uh, uh, people who strive to be in the in the middle class, this is very harmful to people in the middle class or those who aspire to the middle class. And and I I don't know how they're going to sell this back home. Um, it is our job as uh, Democrats not to make this political, but to tell people what this would mean to them and to their lives and to their communities. So with Republicans kind of prioritizing right now uh, an issue that is in many ways, you know, at this point, purely partisan. I mean, Democrats are not indicating any support for repealing and replacing Obamacare. They just want to fix the flaws that they say exist within right, the current right. law. You know, obviously, the, the, there's been a lot of distraction coming from the White House 
you know, we talked about Russia. The president himself can't help but just spend a lot of time on Twitter. You know, you talked about jobs. You talked about the economy. You talked about the need to raise wages. Do you see cooperation or opportunities for cooperation on the other side of the aisle? Are there any proposals you can point to where you've had positive discussions with your Republican colleagues? After all, they control both chambers of Congress. So, you know, to actually make some progress on those issues, you would need to presumably work together. Well, my hope is when it comes to transportation, that that's Mm -hmm. an area where we're all saying we need to have a robust uh, highway bill, roads, bridges, rail, airports. We're all talking about that. I happen to serve on the Transportation Infrastructure Committee. I I think we've got a a chairman, uh, uh, Mr. Schuster, out of Pennsylvania, who's who's a decent man. And we work very well together. Same thing with um, the Agriculture Committee. That's the other committee I serve on. It's, it's also one of those committees where Democrats and Republicans work well together. We've got a five-year uh, highway bill that we need to be negotiating, infrastructure bill. And we've got a five, five-year farm bill that's on the table to be negotiated. I hope th- those are a couple areas where we'll be able to work together. But as it pertains to health care... There are two areas where Democrats, even those who voted for the Affordable Care Act, I wasn't in Congress at the time, but are saying that we need to work on the price of prescription drugs and the overall price Mm -hmm. of health care as it pertains to um, co-pays, deductibles, and premiums. Those are the areas that we ought to be sitting down and really hammering out how we can make this better as opposed to this uh, constant argument about repeal and replace and replacing it with something that's just mm-hmm. absolutely horrible for everyday people. Mm-hmm. And as we talk about just in closing what Democrats you know, plan to do in terms of the direction that you believe the party should take last week, you know, there was a, a fair amount of uh, fixation on Leader Pelosi, uh, Nancy Pelosi, and you know her, her leadership, some you know, disagreement within the ranks, and, and I think uh, some criticism of, of the way that she has led the, the caucus in this in this moment, whether or not she should be replaced, you know, what is the mood uh, with respect to her leadership? You know, what do you what do you what is the actual behind the scenes mood among Democrats? Well, there's, um, I don't I don't want another sideshow. We've got enough sideshows going on in Washington with uh, President Trump's constant tweets in the middle of the night that are just diversions from what we should be focused on. Um, I I hope going forward that. The, the, the drama involved with um, those who think we need a change and those who don't think we need a change, that we just focus on what we need to be doing back home. People back home, again, they're, I'm not getting questions um, obsessing about who our leader is. What I'm getting questions about is what are you doing um, to improve the, uh, the fact that we need to be making more money, um, that people who have lost their jobs to, to Mexico or to, ch- to China – um, that's what we ought to be focused on. I, I do an annual economic summit. I do regional economic summits. It is what we talk about nonstop back home. Uh, my message to, to my colleagues more than anything is let's stay focused on what we need to be doing for people. Mm-hmm. And they're not obsessed with all of these sideshows that are going on out here. All right. Well, Congresswoman Sherry Busses, thank you so much for joining us this morning. You can follow her on Twitter at Rep Sherry with a C. Uh, We really appreciate having you here. We hope that you will come back and that you'll join us again. Thank you, Sabrina. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Thanks so much. We're going to keep our conversation uh, going, and I will, will, I think, continue to discuss, especially the Supreme Court, which had a very busy Monday. One of this is, of course, one of the last work weeks of for the high for the high court before, of course, they embark on their summer recess. And uh, we were talking earlier about the travel ban. Here's what Sean Spicer 
had to say when he was asked about the decision. There's been some confusion. I feel like this bears some discussion about, you know, how exactly the ju- the justices ruled, if they even did. The president was honored by the 9-0 decision that allows him to use an important tool to protect our nation's homeland. And so, you know, one thing that Sean Spicer did was he claimed that there was a 9-0 decision. <laughs> and this, I, I just have to spend a moment talking about Yeah, this. let's do it. Because there was not a 9-0 decision that in, upheld the merits of the travel ban. Again, this is a decision by the Supreme Court to consider the administration's appeal of you know the lower court rulings that had blocked the travel ban from going into effect. So basically the Supreme Court unanimously, if they did unanimously agree to anything, is that they will take up and hear oral arguments with respect to the travel ban it's kind of technical and wonky. It's called a per curiam decision, but it, it basically means it's a decision on behalf of the court, not on behalf of individual justices. So insofar as there was a unanimous ruling, it is a vast mischaracterization to say that it was a unanimous ruling in favor of the travel ban. Well, I am stunned that there was a gross mischaracterization <laughs> of uh, the Supreme Court's decision by the Donald Trump administration. Yeah, you know, um, we're, we'll have to get more into that with uh, Faz Shakir from the ACLU when he joins us a little bit later in this show. Uh, Peter, I, I feel like it bears a little bit more a conversation around, you know, the Democratic Party. Yeah. And what we were just talking about with Congressman Sherry Bustos, because I do think as much as I, you know, I know that there could be some frustration among Democrats, among liberals about you know, the extent to which people have to reach out to to voters and, and was it really a focus on the economy and jobs? Was it more of an anti-immigrant nationalist sentiment? It was maybe a combination of both. But, you know, this sort of obsession that has emerged. Some people say, look, no, you know, Trump is an abomination. We just need to focus on that. Um, but I also feel like I, I won't deny that when I have a lot of conversations with people who don't live in Washington, including my own friends, including a lot of my family members, they don't have a lot of confidence in the Democratic Party. No, and they shouldn't. I mean, the Democratic Party has a big, big, big problem. And I think that uh, Congresswoman Bustos hit on a couple of very interesting points there. I don't think that there are a ton of people out there who were, I mean, if you were on the fence at all about Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, your focus right now is not the Russia stuff. Right, which is what so many Democrats want to just like put all their eggs in that basket, and it's just so foolish. Look, is there something to the Rush Russia stuff? Probably. Right. I believe that there probably is. Can you just? I mean, like that is one of the biggest takeaways from the election. You can't just say this guy is bad, this guy is bad, this guy is bad, this guy is bad, and expect people to come over and vote for you. They're just not going to do it. You got to give them other new ideas. You got to give them things to get behind. And the Democratic Party hasn't done a lot of that since the election. And granted, it's been six months, and in the yeah. long scope of history, that's really nothing. But a couple of things: you, if you are a Democrat, you have got to be acutely aware of what what it is that people care about, right? Health care is definitely one of them. And if you're going to go to the mat for any issue, go to the mat over health care, you know, if you're a Democrat. Um, 
to your earlier question, Nancy Pelosi should probably go. Mm. She should probably step down. Nancy Pelosi has been amazing and has done wonderful things and has been seriously undervalued by a large part of the Democratic Party. Yes. Well, when we talk about Obamacare, we really should be talking about Pelosi care. She she made that happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, all that being said, this is the third president she served under. She can step aside. Uh, noticeably, the congressman did not take a position no. on uh, whether or not Leah Pelosi should stay. And uh, she herself is a member of House Democratic leadership. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that that was necessarily a vote of confidence for Nancy Pelosi, no. you know, she kind of called it a sideshow and that sure. that's not really what people are focused on. But she certainly did not offer, you know, an endorsement of of, you know, the, Nancy Pelosi as the leader saying, well, she's doing a great job. I think, you know, yeah. she's she's taken us through a lot. So I think that there is some um, growing sentiment that it's not really that she's has been ineffective. It's mm-hmm. that it's time to turn a new page in leadership. Um rather than potentially having the same faces at the helm. Um, but in addition to just this constant question of, you know, who are the future leaders of the Democratic Party, what I can try to figure out, and it's not, you know, I guess you said transportation is one issue. You know, I'm, I, what I haven't really been able to wrap my head around is, you know, if you're, if you're strategically thinking um, as a Democratic Party and you've got Republicans who are in control of both chambers of Congress mm. um, and you have a complete wild card in the White House. I mean, you have a person who is really not focused in any meaningful way on policy and on signing meaningful legislation. What do you really do? I mean, what are you offering to people? You can, you can go around, you could say, we think we should raise the minimum wage, but you don't really have a means to do it when Republicans have essentially not taken a position against raising the minimum wage. Are you, you know, you're not going to have the same, obviously, approach on tax reform. If anything, you're trying to prevent them from a massive tax cut for the wealthy. I mean, healthcare again, make it maybe make it a referendum on this bill that would do a lot of damage to a lot of people. But in terms of offering ideas and and actually showing that you're in a position to implement them, here's a hot take. Okay, uh, I'm all about those hot takes. Democrats could put together their version of healthcare, right? Whether it's single payer or whatever, which John Conyers has already introduced a bill uh, for for single payer. But if they get some sort of bill together. Uh, let's say it's single payer. What Donald Trump described as his ideal health care plan and what he still seems to be leaning towards when you hear him refer to the Republican plan as mean and needs a little more heart, uh, which probably means money. Um, it's, it sounds a lot like single payer. So if the Democrats got together a plan for health care, mm. I, I would not rule out Donald Trump working on that legislation. By the way, for what it's worth, this morning in the Wall Street Journal, Elizabeth Warren making it clear that in 2018-2020, Democrats should be running on single payer. That's it. She says, quote, now it's time for the next step, and the next step is single payer. She's right. Well, there you go. Got to be. <laughs> there you go. It's got to be. I want to take it, uh, shift gears a little bit from healthcare, just because we were talking a bit about the Supreme Court and a very busy uh, day that they had yesterday and in the travel ban we'll dive more into later they also took up a case that has to do with and this this originated in colorado whether or not a baker um can refuse 
to sell a wedding cake to a gay couple. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I think that this would have significant ramifications as, insofar as the interpretation of religious I do too. freedom is concerned. Uh, Peter. Oh, boy. <laughs> Well, I just I just want to know. I mean, you know, this is this this Supreme Court has on the one hand delivered some historic victories to the cause of LGBT rights, obviously ruling that same sex marriage is the law of the land on religious freedom. Yeah, they have been had a more conservative uh, record in recent years. I think most notably the contraception mandate and that was the last probably clear cut example of you know relig- so called religious freedom um that was being weighed by the court in that case could an employer deny contra- the contraception coverage that was mandated by obamacare on religious grounds and they did in fact rule in that case against the administration yeah. the obama administration here i mean what do you think what do you what do you say? This I is not that, a corporation denying. This is one individual baker saying, "I don't, I don't, I'm not comfortable with this." Well, I, th- I think that it's uh, it's it's really tough because there is a weird libertarian streak in me that thinks that businesses should be able to run their business in a way that they see fit, right? But I, there is a line to that, right? There clearly is a line. You cannot refuse service to you know black people. Right. Or minorities. You can't just say, like, black people aren't welcome here. Right. Or women aren't welcome here. Right. So, like, let's have some common sense here. Right. Um, I think the Supreme Court, this Supreme Court that we're looking at right now is going to be pretty dicey with a, a story with like Neil this. Neil Gorsuch? A case like this. Yeah, I do. I really do think so. Um, I don't know how they land on it, but I, I my gut tells me it won't be good. Yeah, I, I, the lower courts had ruled that Jack Phillips, who is the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop, had in fact violated the public accommodations law of Colorado, where this case originated from. That law, of course, prohibits people from denying service to customers on factors that include race, sex, mm. sexual orientation. Uh, but, you know, this, again, could be that fine line that the Supreme Court, as we saw with the contraception mandate, um, has not exactly been able to thread with respect to separating corporations from religious institutions. It seems that the lines have been blurred. Um, And actually, they also ruled yesterday that uh, churches could be eligible for public funds because in the state of Missouri, a church had been denied funds to make improvements to its playground and the court ruled in favor of the church saying that there we should not be barring funds to this church for improving its playground um which which you know again i think comes into this broader question of how are they really actually determining the separation of church and state insofar as the constitution lays it out there's a little part of me although i don't personally have any great issue with giving a church some state dollars to improve a playground. Um, I guess the question would have been, well, what else would you give a church state dollars for any religious institution? Um, I really would want to see, and I almost hope 
that people who are both listening and watching, I really would love to see like a mosque ask for fe- for some state money. Can to you build imagine a, to build a playground? And just I just want to see what happens. Can you imagine? I I hope that like a mosque in one of the most you know rural conservative states in the country asks and requests for some uh, state funding now that that is permissible to build a playground because I just want to see if if that double standard you know is something that comes to the surface that. It depends on what exactly the religious institution is. That's a good point. You know, but, uh, you know, we will have a lot on the Supreme Court that we'll dissect with our friends at the ACLU. But, you know, before that, we're actually going to have a little bit of a change of pace and talk about our elections and how we can make them more more fair. Peter, any yeah. thoughts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's going to be the Fair Representation Act. We're going to talk about that with Chris Novoselic, formerly of the band Nirvana, uh, who is now uh, with Fair Vote. They're going to talk to us all about that. Yeah. Well, stay tuned. You're not going to want to miss it. We'll be back after a short break. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to the Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill. And happy to be back with my friends, such as Peter Ogburn. Well, we're, we're co-workers, I think. Co-workers. Friends is a little strong, don't you think? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We're, we're friends. It's well, good to see you. Thank you for coming in good, and thank you for hosting. It's good to see you, Peter. Of course, we've also got Jamie Benson, Rachel Pikarski, and Cyprian Bolding, our whole team here. Uh, really, really helping us put together a great show for you on this particular Tuesday morning. Uh, we've got a great conversation that I'm very excited about and that we will commence in no short order. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. I got another TSA story. I did a TSA story about a lobster last hour. This is another <laughs> one. But this is they're, they're testing some new features that they're calling decluttering they want people to declutter their carry-on luggage and what that could mean is that they're asking people to take books out of their carry-on luggage now electronics you already have to take out of course and any kind of liquids right like uh or deodorant or toothpaste or that stuff you have to have separate and take it out they're now asking people to take books 
out of your carry-on luggage, which seems a little silly. Books. I don't know the last time that books were really all that dangerous. Is this like they were well written? The books where they're hollowed out and you can hide drugs in them. Well, what they say is, they, is not that, that I've done that. Before. As you say, you I seem familiar with. I some, have done that before. Some of the uh, tactics here. Uh, but they say that because people are overstuffing their bags, it's harder for the X-ray machines to see what's in there, so that. They want people to just take their large books out so that they can get a better look at what's in your bag. Mm. I'm anti this, for the record. Yeah. I'm, I'm, a I'm a supporter of books in general, and people who actually still read books may, may have some other uses for them, too. Yeah. But maybe, I feel like at this point, what, what will they not ask us to take out now? I used to have a... a uh, when we're going through security. It's already such a process. I used to have a thick... A psychology textbook that I had hollowed out. I used to keep my weed in there, <laughs> and that was our slow. That was our little tag. We'd go study psychology uh, at work. <laughs> anyway, uh, in other news, yesterday uh, in an interview with CNN, Alec Baldwin ended months of speculation on the future of his role as uh, performing as Donald Trump on SNL. Says he will be back on the show next season. He says he's going to fit it in. He will be playing Trump at least for one more season. He says, quote, I think people have really enjoyed it. You know what? Trump is, <laughs> Baldwin is sort of becoming Trump. I don't know. Like, and this has become so hard to differentiate now. What is Alec Baldwin? Yeah. And what is Trump? You know, one of the newspapers, I believe it was in Europe, accidentally printed a photo, a stock photo of Alec Baldwin oh, on SNL. Instead of yeah. what they meant for a news story that where they meant to use an actual photo of Trump, yeah. Um, and he is his impression is great, it's pretty good. I do think that it kind of has worn out now, but maybe that's yeah. just because it's just all consuming. I mean, what are you gonna do? I don't think anyone would have had not run into the I, issue. I, I think Alec it's Baldwin just, is a it's little... not, it's not funny. I think a lot of it also is not funny anymore. I, I, <laughs> Alec Baldwin uh, is a little bit closer to Trump than I think a lot of his fans would like to admit. But uh-huh. uh, one more, one more bit of shop talk. One more bit of shop talk. Uh, Megyn Kelly continues her ratings slide for NBC News. Just this past week, her Sunday show averaged 3.4 million viewers. That show was tied for the lowest rating among original programs, according to Nielsen. By comparison, her first show, which debuted not even a month ago, pulled in 6.2 mm. million viewers. Peter, I watched some of that show last Sunday. That. I know. <laughs> you would have been particularly angry. Do you know who her guest was, the no. feature? No. J.D. Vance. Oh. Hillbilly Elegy. No, thank you. Well, you Hardest know, this is, of passes. Uh, this is part of the uh, approach by MSNBC to bring in a wider spectrum of voices, including more conservatives or conservative-leaning sure. hosts. We'll see how it shakes out. Uh, seems like not as smooth as people might hope yet, but a lot of interesting programming ahead, including on this very program. On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. All right, we have a special treat now. Joining us in studio is Chris Novoselic. He is the chair of Fair Vote, and we'll get a little bit more into Fair Vote and what they do. He is also a founding member of Nirvana, a band you may have heard of. You know, <laughs> it's pretty popular, I certainly when I was a kid. 
I don't know. Peter thought I'm, that. Peter thought that I'm of I, a certain age. Peter, Peter thought that I didn't. I may not know. I like actually thought that I may not know like about Nirvana, and I was like, okay. I mean, I don't well, know. You're younger. Younger, but I'm, well, I think I, it still I'll resonates. take it as a compliment that he seems to think I'm some like twenty-something millennial. I'm okay. having a mini freakout right now because yeah. I was a bass player. I'm a. I was a big fan. Yeah. Hi, Sabrina. Hi, Peter. Hey, man. Thanks for the kind words and the great introduction. I'm happy to Thanks be here. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Yes. We'd love to hear uh, about Fairvote, which folks can visit online at fairvote.org. And uh, first and foremost, uh, can you just tell us, you know, what exactly, uh, what is the work that you do? What is your goal? Well, this is how I got into Fairvote. It was like Oh, my God. Speaking of the years past, it was like in the late 90s. I was active in the Seattle music community, and uh, we were fighting censorship. We were fighting bans on concerts. And that's where I got my civic education, and I uh, learned how, you know, government works. And I saw a lot of flaws in the system, uncompetitive elections, uncontested seats, entrenched incumbents. And so at the time, I was on the Alta Vista search engine. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Remember that? I was little... uh, just typing in keywords, democracy, election reform, voting reform, voting. And this one group would come up, Fair Vote, and promoting proportional representation, election reform for the United States. And like, wow, is this, a, is this legal in America? <laughs> mm. It is. And it's established. Uh, there's case law. There's scholarship. And it's uh, these kind of, this type of voting is used mostly found in the Voting Rights Act here in, in, in our country. And so I started to work with Fair Votes. In, um, I joined the board in the early 2000s. And then in 2008, I took over as board chair from John B. Anderson. He was, uh, if you recall, another blast from the past was a 1980 uh, presidential election. He had an iconic uh, campaign. For, for president as an independent. Oh wow! So he was an indie. He was like I was like an indie <laughs> rock. <laughs> he's an indie. Yeah, he's the indie uh, polit- politician. And so you know, Fair Vote, we're a nonpartisan group, a nonprofit. We work on transformational politics, and we try to give every vo- a voter a choice, more choices and more voices. And uh, I think we're doing the most comprehensive work in the United States right now fighting gerrymandering. Mm. Well, you know, last... That's a big deal right now. The Supreme Court is going to take a look at that. I I wanted to point to some of the statistics that you you guys have shared, which is that 85%, more than 85% of U.S. House districts are completely safe for the party that holds them. That's what you guys have found. Only 4% were actually true toss-ups in 2016. Uh, What does that mean uh, to you and... What are some actions that could or sh- or would be taken in order to change that? Well, Sabrina, what it means is that the political elites, the insiders, uh, they've just taken over the political system, and we voters are spectators. And the way they do that is through single-member districts and winner-take-all elections. And for the United States House of Representatives, that type of voting arrangement is nowhere in the United States Constitution. Mm. The Constitution silent on how the House is elected as far as like voting goes and it's, a lot of it's left up to the states on, on how, how they elect it but in 1967 uh, Congress passed a law mandating uh, single member districts for the U.S. House and that came on the heels of the Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights which is a good thing however after a while it got manipulated by the elites 
and we have a gerrymandering. And so we have uh, political insiders. In some, in some uh, uh, cases, in certain states, there's uh, commissions mm-hmm. that draw these districts, and they decide who are winners and who are losers before any vote is cast. And so what we're saying in fair vote is that the voter should decide who gets elected, okay? So how do we do that? Well, we do away with a single-member district, and we have multi-member uh, districts. So say you have a seat for the, your U.S. House, or, would be, uh, or a district for U.S. House, there'd be like three seats. And so the Republican could elect somebody, the Democrats could elect somebody, and there'd be space for third parties and independents. It's basically proportional representation, but we call it fair representation voting at fair vote because it's not like a European system. It's not a party-less system. It's an American system established in America. You vote for the person and not the party. And then the thresholds for election are a lot uh, larger. Like, say, in Israel, it takes a little over. They've raised the threshold recently. Israel, it takes like 3 4% of the vote to get elected. In Israel or Germany, it takes a few, you know, a few percentage mm-hmm. of points. In the United States, it would take 17%, 25%, depending on what you know the seat magnitude is. Yeah, you know, I think that the last... It's wonky, wonky. It's, it is, but, you know, last but year... This, but, but by the way, this is, I mean, it is wonky, but it's also why I think we've gotten into this position that we're in. Say, the wonkiness week... is on the front end, though, with the voter, okay? Yeah. Because when you do redistricting and gerrymandering, the wonkiness is behind closed doors. Yes. It's very yeah, sophisticated, yeah, yeah. very complicated. We could do a whole show and lose all our listeners <laughs> if we were to talk about that and oh, not this, cover this, all. The people who listen to this show, they they care. They're into it. Good, good, yeah. good, good. Well, because I was going to say, last year I think we really saw a lot of frustration with the system really, really boiled to the surface. Uh, Bernie Sanders, of course, uh, is an independent who caucuses Democrats. He ran for the Democratic nomination. A lot of independent voters, um, you know, they... Kind of in some cases were shut out of the primary process because you know you had certain cases where there were closed primaries they could not participate, um, and then I think in general then you had third party candidates who were kind of characterized as spoilers because we kind of have this what has evolved into a mostly two party system when you get to the general election, uh, but I think that there are people felt people still even regardless of the outcome with the election. Um, a lot of people you talk to who cast their ballots for a third party candidate or sat at home. Um, of course, you have some re- you have some regrets, I think, especially when you look at the current state of affairs in the White House. But a lot of people feel very passionately that, no, they, they in fact, they shouldn't have been forced, you know, to, to, to choose between two candidates. And they did not, you know, contribute in some sort of detrimental way by casting their party for a third party candidate that they didn't throw away their vote. Um, and I, and I was, you know, I think I was wondering, you know, in terms of how many people do you have involved in this movement at a grassroots level? What does this really look like? Well, we're, we're, we've had a lot of success over the past 25 years. Like we've uh, got ranked choice voting, which is a dynamic way to vote, gives voters more choices uh, where you you don't have that spoiler vote, where you don't have that throwing your vote away, you get like a you get choices on the ballot, you get to rank your candidate. We've passed that in the Bay Area, we've passed it in the Twin Cities, Portland, Maine uses it. We passed it for the state of Maine. There's a big vote today in this in the Maine legislature about uh, the future of ranked choice voting in Maine. But you know we're you know we're moving forward, but it's it's fundamental change, and uh, I think we have something to offer. 
offer people. We're used to, in, in, in this modern world of ours, we have so many choices now, we'll say with the internet, there's mm. just so much information, and then we go to the voting booth and it's just like, you get this binary choice. Yeah. And and I think we're, we can move past that, and we just need to get the word out to people. It's like, you have the power, and that's where the power belongs, is with the voters. And you get more choices, you get a, a better campaign. And we found, we've had a study done by uh, political scientists shown uh, on local elections, like say ranked choice voting, is uh, less negative campaigning. Okay, why? Because voters, because candidates have to reach out to more voters. Okay, and that's a that's actually a proven a successful strategy to win. You got to build yourself up rather than tear everybody. Yeah, else exactly. Down. It's just yeah, like but... I'm not going to get a majority of votes, and so I need to get second and third yeah, choices. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm going to go out there. Candidates endorsing each other. Okay, so they're building these coalitions. It's do, pretty cool. What you, a weird utopian you, political. Yeah, ranked choice voting. Do you I'm do you see um, support? Among the, you know, f- with respect to what you're laying out here, and when you talk to pe- members of the two parties that you know do dominate the system and hold the majority of seats in Congress, do you see Republicans and/or Democrats uh, being open to some of these reforms? Because you well, know what it would also do is jeopardize uh, the the strategy that they have used with the gerrymandering certainly Republicans right. oh, to yeah. actually be where they are and, and have the seats that it, it, they it's, hold. It's really difficult. However, yesterday we uh, broke some ground and we introduced in Congress uh, Representative Don Beyer from Virginia yeah. introduced the Fair Representation Act. He's been in here in, in studio and talked about it. It's the, yeah. He's a great guy. Yeah, and it's basically the, the goal is to uh, solve gerrymandering and all those issues, all those court issues uh, you mentioned Sabrina. It's in, in the Supreme Court, or maybe or Peter did. In the Supreme Court, it's going to be gerrymandering. is going to be back in the Supreme Court. Yeah. It's, it's in, it seems like some always some state map is always in court now. Okay, so if we had the Fair Representation Act, if that was law, we wouldn't see that anymore. We'd actually have a stable democracy. We wouldn't have these maps challenged because of the nature of this election reform, where it's like a shared representation. Mm-hmm. Where you have uh, you'd have these bipartisan delegations sent to the U.S. House, okay? So you have a state like uh, Massachusetts that has nine members. Uh, it sends to Washington D.C. They're all Democrats. However, there's like over forty percent of voters in Massachusetts are Republicans, and it's the flip side in like Oklahoma or Utah. There's a plenty of Democrats out there, and they don't get any representation. So what we're saying with fair vote is is like if you vote and you pay taxes, and you're subject to the rules and the laws of the land, you should get some representation. And so that's our offer to people. Okay, so then you would get more rural Democrats, you'd get more urban Republicans, and so there, that's offering a more uh, moderate moderate politics. And it's easy to forget that those voters exist. You know, urban well, Republicans I, and rural Democrats. I live, I live in southwest Washington state, and we have uh, our a delegation. Well, we have two House State House members and the state in Olymp- we send to Olympia two State House members and a state senator. Well, one State House member is a Republican, and one's a Democrat. They both have NRA endorsements. Okay. Mm. So and so, if you're not in the NRA, well, you think that you can have then you had to have urban Republicans who would be more moderate on issues like they would be good for the Republican caucus. They would bring some of those urban values into the caucus, but so what we have in the United States right now as part of our polar, polarization is that urban-rural divide, 
and it's it's caught up in that binary two-party system, mm. blue team, red team, clashing heads. And so Fair Representation Act promises to shake that mm. up. Well, though certainly if there was ever any evidence that those voters exist, it was the 2016 presidential election where uh, you one of the reasons why uh, Trump was able to win is because there were working class voters who swung from Obama to Trump in all, especially along the so-called Rust Belt. Um, we had Congresswoman Sherry Bustos in here just before you came in. Uh, she is a Democrat from the 17th District of Illinois, and Trump won her district by double digits, uh, but then so did she. Yeah. So, so, yeah. And she's, yeah. she, so you know, I, I think that, that. I mean, you know, there's, there's certainly uh, not necessarily... I mean, I think that there's a, there's certainly polling might indicate you know a, a bit of a hyper partisanship that takes hold, but a lot of the, the issues that are being polled on when you're just talking about members of Congress, it's a little bit more boilerplate. But when you kind of break it down into actually offering people choices, they actually have shown themselves to be capable of splitting the ticket. You know, I think you hit on an interesting point when you talk about how uh, you know the wonkiness they they sort of keep out of the eyes of of the voters. I think that. We're sort of in a time now where I think a lot of people who might consider themselves to be politically active really took a back seat for the last couple of years because, you know, things have been relatively peaceful here in America for a lot of people, right? And we're well, living since in this a recession. Well, are, yeah, yeah. And so, like, picked up. Yeah, it really has. And, and, like, we're living in a time of kind of uncertainty and turmoil. And I think that really has scared the hell out of a lot of people. You see, like, international terrorism. Yeah. yeah. And you see these marches that are taking place, and you see these people that want to do something. I think what's going on with the left and the right, too, there's just a lot of reactionary politics. Yeah. I, I saw it in the Sanders campaign. It was just reactionary, Donald Trump reactionary. Even then Clinton, she was kind of like she was for TP, TPP, but then she was against it. Right. And so she well, tried to ride on this populist wave. And maybe it's social media. I don't really have my finger on it you know i go on social media and i just see you know those memes people obsessing on certain candidates and it's just like well that's not politics people right <laughs> politics is, is a lot of times you can go out in your community and you can get neck deep in politics it's, it's like to do things for to make life better for people and to like take on issues and just kind of jump in social media from right this kind meme. of national like obsession over it's not right, yeah who's people up, who's are down. yeah people are just obsessed they're, oh it's obama's birth certificate now it's donald Trump, it's just like wow. I just... and, it's, and it's also just this, you know, obsession among the uh, or, or about the White House, right? Everybody thought Barack Obama's in the White House. We're not going to have to worry about the down ticket issues. Hillary Clinton is certainly going to win the presidency, so we don't have to worry about the other stuff. And we've now got to go all the way down the ballot. It's just like, what, Trump won? I was going to go to Burning Man. (laughs) I was going to go kite surfing. I was going to go to the brew pub. And now what am I going to do? I have to do something. And there's people, then there was the shock. Yeah. The shock. It's just like, you know, I'm going to share this reactionary article on on Trump or whatever. Fake news on both sides. People got fake news. Like the rural Trump supporters, because I live in rural Washington State. It's just like, Man, they were just spoon-fed fake news, all kinds of crazy things. It's like, wow. I don't know. So, you know, the, the all I try to do is, like, I play in a band, okay? I got a, <laughs> I got a show coming up here, shows here this weekend in Oregon. But 
you know, I try to do my civic participation. I do local community service and I work with Fair Vote. I do the Fair Representation Act. It's like, hey, people hate gerrymandering. They hate the notion of these elites, these insiders are cooking the books, basically. They draw these lines to benefit themselves and their parties. Why don't we do something for ourselves, voters, to <laughs> give ourselves power <laughs> to elect the people we want to elect? Yeah. Maybe we want to elect a, 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 a rural a Democrat, an urban Republican, a space for third parties and independents. Yeah. Yeah. New ideas out there to just shake things up. It's just, this is constitutional. It's solidly, it's been, there's a history of it in the United States. There's a scholarship, there's a case law. We're ready to go with, with fair vote. So and what's we, the biggest barrier to you? Well, a couple things are is entrenched interests. Same mm-hmm. thing. Politics as usual. Um, politicians, uh, survival instincts. It's just like, oh, what do you mean? I have to I'll have a competitive election. I mean, I've got this uh, uh, career in Washington, D.C. I've got all the pump. I'm representative. So-and-so, I make $200,000 a year, my salary. I get all these benefits. Uh, wait a minute. Why would I want to shake? Why would I? It works for me. And then there's all this white noise out there about, you know, all this just reactionary politics. But why don't we, you know, set that aside a little bit and just look at the system and look at the rules. And then mm-hmm. why don't we make the rules more fair? And the rules more, you know, inclusive for people. And so those those uh, Democrats in Utah, those uh, Republicans in Massachusetts, I I think they you need you need to check this out because it gives you more power as a voter. It gives you more of a voice. Yeah. I have to ask you while you're here, and I know that you are from a nonpartisan group, so I'm not going to ask you to take up. Ask me anything. Okay, ask you anything. What do you think is, I mean, there's been a lot of fixation. Some of it might be noise. Some of it is more substantive about this current administration, about the White House. What is the most bizarre thing to you about the White House at this this moment in time? (laughs) Well, what's bizarre about it is, and you mentioned this, Sabrina, earlier, about people were just looking for something different, and they were wanted a disruptive, uh, vote for something that was disruptive, and they got it in uh, uh, Donald Trump. I mean, he he's literally a bull in a china shop, mm. okay? And uh, that's what we got. And so you get uh, people in, in the White House, and they're not establishment people. And uh, we don't have, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you have these elites, this political class, and then they, you know, they, they run things. And so we don't have these really. I mean, Trump is an elite in a lot of ways because of what what he does. But he wasn't really a, you know, he's a developer or a reality. He's not star. a politician. A he was yeah. He wasn't a career politician. So, you know, but we'll see what happens with with uh, our uh, re- small R Republican system, our constitutional system, and what Congress and you know the House and what the Senate do because they're they're. It's an interesting dynamic as you, you you see these like House members and they're uncomfortable with Trump. However, their district went for Trump. And so they got to kind of work that. Mm. Right. And so maybe we'll see what if he if Trump implodes or he'll survive. We don't you know, we don't know. So it's it's really interesting. Yeah. I, I hope I answered your question. No, you, you sort of did. I just wonder what it's like when you're kind of working on you know, this Fair Representation Act and, and having, as you say, um, uh, less career politicians 
um, you know, in office. And then in this case, you got one who um, I, 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 I don't want to exaggerate necessarily, but has, has, it has been chaos. Yeah, like the Twitters, the tweets, and just yeah. like, did you say Kofefe? <laughs> well, I wrote, I wrote this thing that uh, Kofefar is the infinitive of Kofefe. Oh, perfect. Yeah, perfect. you know what I mean. It's just like, what, what does it mean, right? Or just like bizarre tweets, and it's just like, well, maybe it's weird having a president tweeting, but maybe he's like, all of a sudden, it's a new world. The presidents will always tweet. Now. Yeah, I, I really do think so. Be. I really do. I mean, if you look at how the press shop for this White House is sort of framing things, it's just kind of like. We have this uh, head of the administration that just wants to say everything in his own terms. And he just has to tweet everything. And, yeah. like, maybe this is where we are now. And that's the way it's going to be. And that's, you know, we're in the it's 2017 technologies rolling down the road. There's just, you know. One of, the, one of the things that, like, my biggest takeaways from this whole conversation is a lot of people hear what you're talking about with the fair vote stuff and it sounds like a heavy lift right it just sounds so oh it's herculean yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 it took and, us 20 years to get here and it is it is but at the same you're time me yeah, yeah right but at the same time we live in a in a time now where i think like you we look at politics we can we think like anything could kind of happen you know I mean, I we've do got, think that we've got Donald Trump as president. You look at what Bernie Sanders did right. uh, and, and the impact that he's having on, on American politics. You look in England, you look at a guy like Jeremy Corbyn, right. uh, you know, and you look at the impact that these political outsiders are having on mainstream politics. And, like, it's Dodge City out there again. Like, yeah. anything, it's wide open. It's there blue could sky. Be, there could be a realignment. Sure. Things, could, things change fast. You know, I was in a band... In the early uh, '90s, so this little band out of Aberdeen, Washington, and <sighs> we, we took to the road, and you know there was MTV and like FM radio, and we thought we'd never get on there. Wow! And then, in just a year later, that it, it was everything just exploded. There was a whole new world. There was like grunge music, alternative music. So I've seen it happen. And, and that happened comes fast, fast. Too. yeah, yeah. And so Trump, yeah, Trump happened fast. All of a sudden, yeah. like, well, what happened? We had Obama, and now we have Trump. <laughs> it's a whole. It's kind of the just the flip side of those. Right. The pendulum yeah. it swung pretty swung far. Pretty, yeah, pretty far. far. Yeah. But then that's exactly what uh what you know gives people at least I think it's a reminder to people that it, it will swing right back in the other direction. It can, it yeah, can hopefully happen. or maybe stay in the center or something something will have to change. I think there's so much incentive for people to like, you know, if you're a Democrat, just run against Trump. Right. And so and don't you don't have to even Proposed to solve any problems, right. right? Because it's just kind of it's it's like a, a, a animal in the wild. It's just going to exploit the easiest way to survive, and it's not very intellectually satisfying. It's just a, kind of politics as usual. It so is. I just hope you know with the Fair Representation Act, we have a different uh, we have a different type of dynamic. We've seen it with uh, with ranked choice voting. You just have right. more candidates and more choices, mm -hmm. and you have these different kinds of campaigns. Right. And just uh, to end on a slightly different note, because you mentioned your uh, your band, uh, you said you're also going to be, you, you still play. Tell yeah. us a little bit about that. You still? Oh well, I'm in this band called Giants in the Trees, and uh, we're going to be playing in Salem, Oregon, on Friday. Is every member of the band uh, as as tall as you are? Is no. everybody come from? Nobody's that tall. The name I'm the tallest from? person in the world. Yeah, you're pretty tall, dude. Yeah, <laughs> I'm six seven. Whew. I'm two yeah. meters. 
two full meters. Two full meters. Two hundred centimeters. You're that's your unofficial giant territory. You are a giant. Yeah, so giant, but it's kind of the lore that we. It's part of our image imagery of the band because we like we live in rural Washington State up in the hills and Sasquatch and the you know giants in the trees that whole kind of. So do you just like hover over everyone in your art? Do you just like kind of tower over your? Always, always. always. <laughs> I always try to tower over. It's <laughs> my art and expression. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's a good way to to go forth to you know members of Congress and people in Washington who uh, hope who I think hopefully will pay more attention to Fair Vote. It's uh, fairvote.org, and you can follow Chris on Twitter at Chris Novoselic. Uh, thank you so much, Chris, for joining us this morning. Uh, we really. Enjoyed having you, Peter. One of his dreams came no, true. No, really, man. No, seriously. He really, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thought this you was guys great. Been a lot to me. The rest Still of do. you stay tuned because we'll be back after this break. So keep on listening to and watching the Bill Press Show. That's the wrong time to sell it. Is afterwards. Download our podcast. Search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is the Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill this morning. And uh, very pleased to have our next guest with us live in studio. He is the National Political Director at the American Civil Liberties Union, Fez Shakir. You can follow him on Twitter at F Shakir. Hi. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Hello, Thanks, Sabrina. Fez. Hi, Peter. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks for, for coming, being here. Yeah. Uh, it's been, I'd say, especially busy for yeah. the ACLU uh, since November, since January. <laughs> um, you know, any given day, it seems that there there is there's any particular issue that you can take up. But one of the most defining issues thus far of this new administration has been its efforts to implement uh, a travel ban on six Muslim majority countries. Originally, it was seven. They took Iraq off that list, uh, but also a 120 day suspension of the entire U.S. refugee program, um, the travel ban on those six countries desired um, 90 days. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, this the Supreme Court, we've discussed this earlier in the show, but they um, yesterday decided that they will hear oral arguments. Uh, uh, the administration has appealed lower court rulings that block them from block the travel ban from going into effect. Uh, now it seems like narrowly they can implement parts of it. Fez, break it down for us. Tell us uh, what yesterday's decision really means. I mean, if you remember from Muslim Ban 1.0 to 2.0 to where we are now, the number of people who've been banned has both increased and then decreased and then increased again. So what we've got uh, essentially an executive order full of uh, uh, holes. It's like Swiss cheese now. Um, so initially, remember, they they tried to ban legal permanent residents, green card holders. They tried to ban uh, people with visas. And, and now we've gotten to a point um, that the Supreme Court said yesterday, after so many courts had said put an injunction on this entire order, right? So many lower courts, from the district court to the circuit court. So it got to the Supreme Court yesterday, and the Supreme Court said, "Well, if you're uh, anyone who has a, um, a bona fide relationship with 
uh, an American with a U.S. citizen, then you can still come in as a foreign national. But if you're not, then you're going to face uh, challenges in entering the United States. So that's kind of the exemption that we're at now and where the ban applies. There's still the six countries, right? So Syria, Somalia, Sudan, Libya, uh, Yemen, and Ir- Iran. Iran yes. And so those are the six countries if you're a foreign national traveling from the U- United States without uh, U.S. citizen contact, uh, then you're going to be uh, in a difficult spot. But right now, we don't even quite know what uh, that bona fide relationship with the U.S. citizen entails. Like, mm. what if it's um, coming here to worship with people that you know or coming here to work with people that you know? Um, is uh, We think that should count as part of the relationship. And if, if it does count, then really, like, the number of people who could be banned by this order um, are going to be tiny and small. So so the Supreme Court did provide some examples yeah. and uh, relatives, if you're visiting a family member, yep. um, you can come if you are a student, um, you know, if you are coming for work, you have a job that's yep. been offered. If you were invited to speak at a university, or you're doing research and, you know, there's a contractor that's been presented to you. Um, but, you know, of course, as you say, there are a lot of holes. Right. How how do you even now decipher what a bona fide relationship will be? Because let's say I think, you know, someone might say, well, my boyfriend lives in the U.S. I yeah. want to visit I mean, uh, my boyfriend I, I or I have a like, friend, that a longtime friend, and I want to go see that person. This all goes back to the essential point of the whole thing, which is that if you're trying to execute a Muslim ban, which Donald Trump is doing, there's no good ways to do it. It's going to uh, intersect with illegality or or really um, impair and damage the relationships of many people. And so I think that obviously in intent, we know that Donald Trump and his administration are still trying to pursue a Muslim ban. Uh, we have uh, numerous statements on the record from them. And so we're now at this point of trying to execute it with words on a piece of paper and trying to divine how it could be legal. And the Supreme Court is saying, well, there's this like one little path that like, okay, we're going to give the president some authority to ban people. And now I'm trying to execute that little path, that little lane. Uh, Even that is messy and dicey because you're trying to prevent Muslims from Muslim majority countries from interacting with people here in the United States. And it gets messy. And people's relationships are messy, right? Like how, how much of a degree of a relationship do you need with somebody in America to substantiate a bona fide relationship? Who knows? Right. And I, I was, you know, I was talking to legal experts yesterday uh, who said, you know, prepare for a summer of litigation. Yeah. I mean, you know, there if and when people are denied and if they feel that they fall under these exemptions that were outlined by the Supreme Court, then, you know, they'll work with an immigration lawyer. They'll want to make their case. Um, but it's just, to, do you think that the DHS and the State Department are equipped to even now sift through and try and decipher what what merits injury, what what is going to be that bona fide relationship? Right. How do you even go about, you know, what are they going to ask for? Are they going to say, well, we need to, like, not just have an address of the person you're visiting, but we need to go make sure that this person right. is related to you? How do you even I see mean, this playing out from an administrative point of it view? It could be very messy, uh, basically. I, I don't know how you uh, try to execute this. Um, but if their goal is to try to impair the flow of foreign nationals, it's probably it. So there's two categories. Right? We're, right now we're spending most of our time talking about foreign nationals from these six Muslim-majority countries. Then there's this other Supreme Court uh, case that they'll probably take up, 
um, relating to Section 6 of the executive order, which is refugees, mm. which we know. So for foreign nationals in the first category, there's a 90-day ban on them from the six Muslim-majority countries. hasn't yet gone into effect. It would go into effect, presuming the Supreme Court uh, upheld it. We'll see what, what happens or if they uh, issue a stay of the injunctions that have happened at the lower court. The second category was a ban on refugees for 120 days. And so that um, this uh, in Hawaii has been taking up that case. Uh, Neil Katyal has been arguing it. And we think that the Supreme Court will also weigh in on that one. Um, and in both of those cases, uh, how you execute them is just so difficult from an administrative level uh, of preventing um, um so many, uh, I think what, what we're worried about is people in the administration, they're trying to put in new obstacles and barriers to execute a Muslim ban. So, for instance, we've heard about social media metrics at the border, like they're taking people's iPhones and they're looking through it and they're trying to gather, hey, do you have like a Muslim uh, prayer map or, or do you have um, uh, something on there that might indicate to us that you are uh, practicing Muslim and then that might somehow be used against you? It, when you talk about that, I keep playing in my head, right? Like a lot of people don't have a problem with that because it's not me. Yeah. I this wouldn't be a problem for me. Well, no, it's not right now. Right. Right. But it could be and that's the whole point with the ACLU. You help out those people who need help because you might be the person needing help right. next it's time. It's about precedent setting and yeah. opening up paving the way for all kinds and, of discrimination. And for anybody to just excuse this and be okay with this because it's a Muslim thing. Well, that's why it you might have, not that's, be a Muslim thing well, that's, forever, That's why man. you have a lot of Holocaust survivors who speak out on yeah. this issue and people who say, look, if they came for us and to, it, today it seems that they might be coming for Muslims. That's, today. in fact, one of our clients um, in Maryland uh, with the case that's now before the Supreme Court is a, um, a, a group that defended Holocaust survivors who tried to immigrate to the United States. So I, I think, like, this is an intersectional moment, Peter. You're right to raise it. I mean, there's so many of the injustices that we're seeing at the ACLU are are just whole swath uh, intersectional uh, relationships between so many different groups of people, whether you're undocumented immigrants, whether you're illegal immigrants, whether you're uh, somebody who's uh, afraid of your voting rights being taken away, or you're somebody who's worried about policing in your communities and uh, 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 the, the war on drugs that they're now trying to bring back up. I think all of those uh, um, methods and practices have resulted in a Trump administration war on people who don't look and act like them, who mm -hmm. don't yeah. look and yeah. think like them. Right. Minorities across the country being under siege. Mm -hmm. Not, And I think that the point on refugees that I wanted to ask you about, which which you raised just a few moments ago, um, that I think was confusing to people. Yeah. So, so yes, you know, we, we'll see what the Supreme Court does with the refugee component insofar as uh, where they left us yesterday was... Um, that for now, the refugees, too, would have to establish a bona fide connection uh, to the United States. Uh, but they didn't give examples of the way that they did with the travelers, with mm -hmm. the foreign nationals from those countries, six Muslim majority countries. And, you know, I mean, are you going to argue that, you know, the refugee resettlement groups here, that's a bona fide connection mm -hmm. or that churches and some of the religious yes. groups who are trying to sponsor these people, would yes. that be? Yes. The answer by to definition, that is, some of these yes. people don't have any connection. Right. That's why they're coming here because they're fleeing war-torn countries and trying to start yes, a new that's life. Right. Uh, you're right on all all those counts. And I just want to put a point on this, that this, that what we heard yesterday was not the final 
determination from the Supreme Court. We're going to argue this case in October. Yeah. So what we're what we're hearing from the Supreme Court is just what is going to be the status of Trump's uh, mm-hmm. Muslim in ban the in the interim in the right. until we get to October or or, or whenever they decide to um, um, judge this case. So uh, in October we'll argue it. We're going to be preparing briefs all during the summer, making um, the case that this is unconstitutional. Uh, I think that the because the discrimination is so embedded in both the intent and the practice of this document that we think we're we that the Supreme Court shouldn't uh, have any problem ruling this unconstitutional, just as every almost essentially every lower court has done so. So I think like Justice Kennedy is probably one of the swing votes again here. We might be looking at a five forward uh, ruling if you saw from yesterday's preliminary injunction, Justice Gorsuch. Not a friend. I mean, he, I mean, yeah. just some some terrible rulings uh, that were on the extreme side of this argument with Justice Thomas. And um, well, so. that was, I think, one of the things that uh, people were unclear about when they were trying to kind of read the tea leaves a little. A lot of people at first took this as, you know, a, a partial victory for the administration. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly, I guess you could say they didn't just keep in place the lower court injunctions in their entirety but if there was any i mean there wasn't the formal dissent that you have but a lot of confusion over the procurium what does that mean i was explaining earlier this is on behalf of the court and that's why it's nine zero they're not actually ruling on the merits of the ban but um you know if you did hear i mean and there were reports of uh, criticism from at least three of the conservative justices gorsuch alito and thomas that that this was they would have wanted to See the, in, full see the full ban in effect, uh, in, effect yeah. in, this, in, in this me, interim period. Do you remember when Trump, by the way, sorry to derail this for a moment, but like, do you remember when Trump, Trump tweeted that he wanted, he was so upset with Muslim ban 2.0 in the course, he said, we should scrap it and go back to Muslim ban 1.0, yeah. which was the most <laughs> amazing Muslim ban. Yeah. And had they done, I mean, like then at that point, like the whole legal case would just be like, uh, upended because that was blatantly unconstitutional. Remember a religious right. minority exemption, and but that goes uh, back so. to the intent. And yes, that exactly. actually this watered down version that passes legal muster, perhaps in like the most if, where they tried to yeah. address every piece of it to, to pass what kind of legal muster they can. He yeah. actually doesn't want that one. He right. wants the one that absolutely he to, doesn't pass that, legal muster. <laughs> well, he, he, <laughs> because he wa- he knows what he wants, which is ban Muslims from right, the United yeah. States. What will get me that goal? Right. Yeah. You guys are just trying to poke holes in right. this whole thing. I just want the ban that stops brown people from coming right. in. What can and I do? I, and I'm going to go back to that in a second, but, but insofar as you heard if there was any you know, at least expression of dissent that it was coming from three of the conservative justices. Yeah. If so, if you're reading the tea leaves, does that does that give you hope that actually what this does mean is that the that there's there's an inclin- Kennedy that there's an inclination that, that they're not comfortable with yeah, the way I, that this c- was certainly means that they're open to hearing I, the arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that like they'll be convinced on the merits. Like just as, as I said, like the fact that every lower court has had a problem with this executive order should hopefully weigh on the Supreme Court. You all dis, all manners of dis, district courts and su- circuit courts taking this up and saying it's unconstitutional right. to some degree. Right. And so, like, I, I can't imagine the Supreme Court is then at the the final arbiter, having heard all these courts say it's unconstitutional, will then say, oh, you know what, we don't have a problem with it. Right. I mean, well, so what the court has at least at least so far said, which is absolutely true, based on I mean, there's this is not reading the you know, the the decision yesterday. This is just what they've clearly said is, well, you cannot outright ban all travelers from mm-hmm. these countries. I yes. mean, but otherwise they would have just 
you know, as as we were just saying, with the, the let, let it go into full effect until yeah. they take up the oral arguments. Clearly, they have said that a lot of the travel, most of the travel, actually, uh, should be permissible. Students mm-hmm. and and workers and family members. I mean, again, it's going to be extremely messy. Yeah. Um, but if you were talking about the merits, it seems that they they would like the majority of the travel. I to mean, continue. a logical administration would stop everything right now and like go <laughs> yes. back to the drawing board, yes. like just take it out of the courts and say, hey, guys, we screwed up here. Uh, let us just retool this and make it something that we could actually put into place that would be uh, appropriately tailored mm-hmm. to whatever the objectives were, whether national security, whatever. But we know that those weren't yeah. the objectives. Looking, so. looking for logic in the <laughs> Trump administration. But, you know, I mean, the tweets are exactly what are so illogical. Yes. But in, they're not only illogical, they're potentially tools that can be used in court. Yes. And I wanted to ask you because... Look, there's been some criticism of the lower courts using campaign statements and um, maybe because it's not it has not typically been done. But then maybe we haven't necessarily been in this situation before where someone, you know, campaigned on something that was clearly unconstitutional and then took office and tried to, you know, execute something of this scale immediately, immediately um, and didn't go through actually all those channels to to tool it in a way that is going to pass legal muster. And then, you know, so I wanted to ask you, um, what do you think can and should be used by the Supreme Court? Uh, certainly, I would think the tweets since he became president are applicable, right? Because so not that's... only the tweets, but every statement he's issued and also the statements made by his allies like Rudy Giuliani and mm-hmm. others, I think they're all really important to show intent. I mean, it's, it's so often when we're trying to discern uh, the impacts of laws and the why they were created, you need to understand intent. And oftentimes, you know, in these kinds of reviews, they go back to congressional records and deliberations and congressional hearings and administrative uh, proceedings. Here we've got Donald Trump, the president of the United States, telling us his intent. And to, to just, just turn a blind eye to it is uh, foolish, would mm. be foolish. I, do you... Um... Do you see it all? Because I was a little bit curious about this. And are, are is that, you know, this is 90 days was the desired, you know, ban on the foreign nationals. Mm-hmm. 120 days, you know, desired suspension of the refugee problem. This is what the administration wanted to do. Yeah. These can take a, an extremely long time, of course. Uh, it could take the process by which the Supreme Court considers, you know, an individual case. It's, it's By the time the oral arguments begin and by the time they eventually maybe next year are handing down a decision does this not sort of become moot in in the so far as that time has actually elapsed um yeah i mean i think there's now a political effect that donald trump wants to say that um that he was able to execute his ban um so i think like he wants to be able to go back and campaign both in 2018 and 2020, saying that ultimately he was right and uh, and won in the Supreme Court. So I think there's just a political effect there. And I think also if you think of Donald Trump, this is someone who is not going to learn the right lessons, I think. He's not someone, I think in a normal administration, you would say, oh, you know, we overstepped and we don't want to overstep again. I think this is a president who says, we overstepped and we got away with it, and I want to do it not only more, but even grander than ever before. So mm-hmm. I, I think I would be worried about the lessons that he takes away and wanting to employ other discriminatory measures, uh, harsh crackdowns on minority populations, um, just because he feels like at the end of the day he could potentially get away with it. Right. There were We were also talking, I, this is a switch gears a little bit because it's a very busy day in the Supreme Court, and earlier about... 
uh, religious freedom. Yeah. Um, you know, they decide to take up the case of a Colorado baker who refused to sell wedding cake. Also our client. Yep. To a gay couple. <laughs> We've um, got a lot of cases <laughs> going right. here. Right in the mix here, huh? And, um, Donald Trump's dragging us. Now, like, you know, <laughs> so I, my mind reverted back yeah. to, although different in, in many ways, but to the contraception yeah. mandate and the yeah. way that the court sided in this case, in that case, with the employer who did not wish to provide certain types of contraception that were required, um, co- coverage which was required under the Affordable Care Act. Um, and in doing so, falsely, in terms of just the science behind it, characterize certain types of contraception as abortion when that's not actually the case. Right. But, I, I mean, you know, on this, can you walk us through, um, you know, how, the Supreme Court, on the one hand, they've handed a lot of victories to LGBT mm-hmm. individuals, certainly the same-sex marriage ruling being the most significant. But on religious freedom, and now that we have a conservative justice in place with Neil Gorsuch, um, what do you expect from this, and what what is your view on the case within and of itself? Well, we, I mean, the question is ultimately whether you have a license to discriminate against um, um, same-sex couples. We've had a, mar- a marriage equality ruling from the Supreme Court, which would deem this to be settled law, I think, that the Supreme Court has said that you have a constitutional right to marry. Uh, and so now you're talking about infringing upon that constitutional right uh, by preventing them from celebrating that that act that you said mm-hmm. was constitutional. I mm-hmm. I just, uh, you know, I, I would hope that um, um, the the court doesn't see uh, this opportunity to revisit settled law on marriage equality. We also think, I mean, like ha- giving people a license to discriminate through the use of religion in itself is a very dicey terrain. I mean, like uh, giving people, um, as you suggested with contraception, we're seeing it all, it, it could be a slippery slope to allowing um all the kinds of forms of discrimination that we've worked so hard to overturn in the courts, allowing that back in through uh, this backdoor path of saying, well, if you have a religious exemption, you can do it. And I think like as a society, we have to be concerned and worried about that because we ultimately our end goal is to rid and remove discrimination in society. And if we're if we're if we're accomplishing that um, objective, then we can't be uh, kind of turning a blind eye and allowing it back in uh, through other forms. Mm. I think that the um, the question that you raise is what other forms of discrimination does this pave the way for? I mean, someone could then tomorrow say, well, I have a religious reason, you know, not to provide this service to a woman, or I have a religious reason not to provide this service to a person of color. I mean, that, that's, not, that's not actually something that is even in a religious teaching per se, but Peter was saying, and what if someone, you know, was to say, I don't want to sell a cake to like a black couple. I don't yeah. know. I mean, you know, I mean, this but is like, it. I mean, there are plenty of people out there, libertarians, yeah. who think that businesses should be able to run their businesses literally any way that they want to run it. And they think that if you want to run a business and you want to say black people are not allowed to come into this store, that you should be allowed to do that. Not that they necessarily agree with that, but right. that you should be able to do that, and then the f- the free market will decide that your business is bad and we shouldn't go in there. Right. Yes, I've heard the argument, and it, it just means that you're creating a society yeah. in which you, you're giving the license There's to no, discriminate. Yeah, exactly. Like, There's no... Like, yeah, it's, it's a majoritarian rule, okay. and so like ultimately if we want to just engage in war against immigrants or women or people we don't like, you're just going to allow that to to happen? You have no society based on morals or ethics or any kind of a code? Yeah. 
It's crazy. What are some of the other, you know, as we kind of wrap things up, more pressing issues that we haven't talked about? What are some things that you feel like are happening kind of behind the scenes and they don't get the same level of attention? Well, we also got another, I mean, we'll continue on the Supreme Court trend here. We've got uh, cases uh, on um, voting rights uh, before the Supreme Court. Uh, I think we're going to be engaged not only in litigation on voting rights, um, but also in advocacy and campaigns. One of the big campaigns I'd tell you guys about is that in Florida, we're going to be working with uh, some coalition partners to re-enfranchise ex-felons who've been denied the right to vote there. About 1.6, 1.7 million people uh, have been denied the right to vote in Florida because they are ex-felons who've mm. served their time. The state constitution prohibits them. from, And this state constitution provision came into effect in 1868. Oof. Think about that. After the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, you had black codes all throughout the South um, trying to reinstitute discrimination, which is what we were talking about, mm -hmm. reinstitute discrimination. So they said, hey, why don't we ban ex-felons from being able to vote? And, and by the way, create a bunch of new felonies uh, that would target, target African-Americans. Mm -hmm. And so what happened since 1868, this law has remained in the state constitution. It's crazy. So we're going to engage in a ballot initiative at this next election cycle, multi-million dollar investment by the ACLU and others to try to uh, get this uh, ballot measure approved uh, uh, by the people of Florida. And we're going to be both gathering signatures this year and then hopefully getting 60 percent plus in November 2018. It'll be a big campaign. Wow. That's 18. You said what year was it? 1868. And yeah. still part of the state constitution. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it, it, the legacy of racism still around. I mean, you you have it, it's really depressing. Oh, but apparently, <laughs> racism ended when we elected <laughs> <Yeah>. Obama. <laughs> it's over. It was uh, over. we live yeah. in a post-racial America job, now. Yeah. Uh, Fez Shakira, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, and for all you guys, you know, keep up all the work. Uh, of course, the ACLU. You can take a look at their work online at aclu.org. Follow Fez at f Shakir Peter. Sabrina, good job. Pleasure today. to be with thank you. you in. And Jamie and Rachel and Cyprian, thank you to everyone for having me. Nice and, work, everybody. You know, follow us on Twitter at BP Show, like us on Facebook. Hopefully, I'll see you guys again. And stay tuned to The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show.